Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This week, speaker, Pastor Brett Starr, gives a sermon entitled, Walk This Way. You can find the sermon outline for this message at enewlife.com or the New Life Church Kahana mobile app. You know, as Pastor Steve was talking about Whitehall, uh, there's an interesting little statistic that maybe not everyone knows. Um, about 60% of churches in America are less than 100 people. So most churches in America are less than 100 people, and to have 198 in the first year is amazing. So I think that's pretty cool. So we're spoiled here. You know, we, we see lots and lots of people. Um, that's not the norm. Uh, so I think that's, that's pretty cool. It's kind of a neat thing. So anyway, all right, well, we're going to jump right in. If you want to get out your sermon notes or if you want to pull up the sermon notes on the New Life app, that works as well. Um, and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be mainly focusing on verses 15 through 21. But what we need to do is we need to kind of go backwards and go through the first four chapters or so and see how Paul ended up and what he says at chapter 5, okay? So we'll, we'll maybe go 80 miles an hour through that, if that's okay. I'm ready, if you're ready, so let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, and we just thank you um, that you can change lives. And I just pray that through your word, you'll change our lives, change our hearts, change our minds, and conform us more to the image of Jesus Christ. And I pray that in his name, amen. All right, the letter of Ephesians was written about 30 years after the death of Christ, and it was written by? So in each celebration, Saturday and 9 o'clock, this side of the room is louder than this side of the room. So I don't know, you know, if I, I don't know, anyway. So all right, so it was written by the, the Apostle Paul, and it was written to the believers in what city? Ephesus, very good. And Ephesus is located in what country these days? What country? Turkey. 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 Turkey, like Thanksgiving. <laughs> now, what was typical with Paul's letters is that they were circulated throughout the churches to teach the believers, to encourage the believers, to train the believers, to give them God's word. Um, they didn't have it all nicely put together as we do. And some of it wasn't even written. So, so it would be passed around from church to church. And there's some of Paul's letters where it says, and make sure you give this letter to these people, to this church, to this city. And so now we have it, and we read it as if it was written for us, which it was. So Paul begins the book in chapter 1 by reminding us of the greatness of God and of his grace, which is poured out on believers in Christ. And we need to remember that when God gives grace or we give grace to somebody, we're giving someone something, or God is giving someone something they don't deserve. That's what grace is. So he reminds us of the grace of God, and he tells us that the grace-giving work of God to us was in his choosing us to be adopted into his family, in redeeming us, and forgiving our sin through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, and giving us an inheritance of salvation which takes place in the life of any person when we hear the gospel and we believe the gospel. And the gospel, as we say all the time, is that Jesus, who is God, came to the earth and lived a perfect life we couldn't live and died a death on the cross that we deserved. And he rose again three days later, proving his power and showing his power over death and sin. And so Paul tells us that when we believe that good news, we have an inheritance and at the moment of our salvation, Paul tells us that God seals us with the Holy Spirit. In that chapter also, Paul expresses his love for the Ephesians, the love for the church, and he shares with them his prayers for them. He prayed that they would have wisdom, a growing knowledge of God, an understanding of the hope that God provides, and an understanding of the greatness and surpassing power that God works within us. In chapter 2, Paul expresses to us, the seriousness of our sin. We need to take sin seriously because God does. And he tells us that God saves us from that sin. And he gives us one of the most well-known and quoted verses of all the Bible, Ephesians 2, 
8 through 10, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He then reminds us, as Alan shared with us a few weeks ago, that we as believers, by the power of the Spirit, we've been brought near to God, and now we make up the family and the household of God. Chapter 3 is Paul's time, in spite of his present suffering and imprisonment, imprisonment while he was writing, he shared his unmatched trust in God and, in, and his understanding that he, along with the rest of us, the rest of the believers, we have a new identity in Christ. And we have a new understanding of the love of God, which nothing and no one can equal. Paul desires all of us to worship God in this chapter. And he says in verse 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We have a responsibility to bring glory to God throughout all the generations. That's part of the reason why we do the graduate Sunday, is to remind ourselves that there are other generations that the glory of God needs to be passed on to. So in the first three chapters, Paul shows us how God has opened to us the door of salvation and the door to his, his household, his home. He's told us that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works when we believe the gospel. And he's told us that God not only opens the door of salvation, but after we walk through the door by faith, he seals us in to his family with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 4 begins Paul's instructions on how the Christian life is to be lived as a son or daughter of God. A lot of times uh, we like to focus on Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. It tells us what to do, but we can't Tell us, we can't tell you what to do unless we know the grace of God first. So it's the grace of God that saves us. We become members of the family of God. We're his sons and daughters. And now we begin to live how our Heavenly Father wants us to live. We need to remember from chapter 2, we're not saved by our good works, but we're saved to do good works, which God has prepared beforehand so we should walk in them. Since Adam and Eve, humans... We've all wanted to do what we want to do. We don't want someone else telling us what to do. I remember being 18 and standing on a similar stage, and a lot of us when we were 18, we don't want mom and dad to tell us what to do. We think because we're 18, now it ends. Mom, dad can't tell me what to do anymore. We don't want people telling us what to do. But if God is God and we're not God, you're not God, I'm not God, but he is, what we should expect from him is that he should tell us how to live and what to do, and he does. The goal of God's instruction and the goal of our obedience is bringing God glory. When he gives us instructions and we obey him, we lift him up so that others can see how great he is. That's the goal of our obedience. Paul also teaches in chapter 4 how God gave some people gifts of apostleship and prophecy, evangelism, shepherding, and teaching so as to equip the saints, the believers, to do the work of the ministry. It's not just up to the, the pastors. To do the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ. Then it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Paul wants us to be mature in our faith and mature in our knowledge of Christ and to become more and more and more like Jesus. That's maturity. Christian maturity is not just being able to check off our list every day that I read my Bible for 10 minutes. Christian maturity is allowing that word to change you and to make us more like Jesus. If we want to be mature, it says to mature manhood men, mature manhood is being like Jesus. It's not like being like any other man. It's being like Jesus. 
So a few of the instructions in chapter 4 that Paul gives, here's a few of them. To put off the old corrupt deceitful self which belongs to our former way of life before we knew Christ. And to put on the new self which is created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. He also tells us that in our anger we are not to sin. He also says we're to speak truth and no longer lie. He says we're to let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but our words are to build others up. Our words must be appropriate for each occasion, and our words must give grace to those who hear us. He says we're to be kind and forgiving like God forgave us. And he says we're to get rid of bitterness, wrath, anger, loud and mean talk, and speaking poorly about other people. We could pretty much stop right there because that's enough. But he goes on in chapter 5. So hopefully you turn there. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. He gives this overarching statement about what the Christian life is supposed to be like and look like. He says, be imitators of God. That means we better know something about God. We better know something about Jesus. Be imitators of God. That's not a suggestion. It's a command. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are to live that way so that we smell good to God and to give ourselves up sacrificially to love people. Be imitators of God. And Paul goes on to teach that we do that by putting away sin and letting God's light shine on us. And what that does is it will shine on all of those areas that we might need to change. In verse 14, look at verse 14, Paul says something very appropriate for those of us sitting in church. He says, awake, oh sleeper, wake up. Wake up. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Paul isn't telling people to wake up during his sermon. But as a side note, I think it's in Acts 20. Uh, Paul was preaching. He preached all day, it says, until midnight. Imagine that. If anybody wants to stick around until midnight. Um, and it says there was this young man sitting in a window. So he was sitting in a window. They didn't have, like, glass windows back then. So he's sitting in the window, listening to Paul's sermon. He fell out of the window and died. And then Paul went down and raised him from the dead. So, moral of the story, don't sit in a window <laughs> that doesn't have glass in it. Don't fall asleep. So, he's not telling them to wake up. What he's saying is that God wants us to wake up and to stop living in our sinful, unfruitful, immoral, deceitful, dark, and dead-end roads that we're living in because we're children of the light. We're not children of the darkness and sin. We live as children of the light, God's light. Look at verse 15. It says, look carefully then how you walk. So he says, wake up. Wake up. Rise from the dead. And look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. So in the New Testament and throughout the book of Ephesians, we're presented with this idea of our walk, okay? Some people might, you know, come up to somebody and say, brother, how's your walk going, okay? You could replace the word walk with live, or people might talk about your Christian walk. How are you living as a Christian? Look carefully then how you walk. So let me read a few verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Philippians 3.17, brothers, join me in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Would you have the guts to tell a bunch of Christians, imitate me, walk the Christian life like I do? That's what Paul did. 1 John 1, 6 and 7 says, If we say we have fellowship with him, with Christ, while we walk in the darkness, we lie. We're liars and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. 
1 John 2, 6 says, whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we say we're Christians. We ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. 2 John 1, 6 says, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. And finally, 3 John 1, 4. I think this is the heart of all pastors everywhere, at least it should be. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, to be clear, he's not talking about his biological children. He is talking about the people that he ministered to, that John ministered to and preached to, and they became believers, and they began to mature in their faith and knowledge of Christ. And he says, I have no greater joy. And I, th- I would say the same thing. I have no greater joy than to hear that the people of new life, the young people of new life, all the people of new life are walking in the truth. What did Jesus say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So I have no greater joy than to hear that you all are walking like Jesus. And that's what John said. So the way in which we walk is important. And Paul tells us to look carefully how we do that, how we walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. So to look carefully at something means to perfectly and diligently figure something out. So we're to perfectly and diligently begin to figure out our walk and our life and how we're living it. And is it pleasing to the Lord? And we're told to do this as wise people. But it takes time, it takes effort, it's hard. And it makes me think of putting together Legos. If you get a box of Legos, okay... You have this picture on the front of the box, and you're like, I want to make that thing. That looks awesome. And so you open the box up, and there's like, I don't know, seven bags of 200 pieces each, you know, of pieces to put together. And so if you've never done this before, uh, you don't want to open all the bags at once and dump them in a big pile and, <laughs> and be like, yay, I can't wait. <laughs> You will quit after 10 minutes because they're all out of order and you have no clue what to do. And then you grab the manual, which is equally thick, it's huge, and page one, it's like page one, piece one. Okay, page two, piece two. Page three, piece three. And it's going piece by piece by piece. But once you're done after however many hours it takes you, you look at the picture on the box and you look at the thing you made and Hopefully, it's going to look like the thing you made if you did it right. So what is God doing with us? He's making us into a new creation. So he's taking every little piece of our lives and changing it and forming it into something new. And it says that we're changed from glory to glory and we're changed and formed or conformed to the image of Jesus Christ until we look like him, which Philippians says, Paul says in Philippians, we're He's, God is doing this. He's going to do this to us until Jesus comes back. So we're at constant work in progress. He then says we're to do this, we're to look closely at our lives, at our walk, and we're to do this as wise people. So where does the wisdom come from that we're doing this? Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. And humility comes before honor. And Isaiah 28, 29 says, This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. The fear of the Lord is not cowering in a corner, shaking in fear that, uh, at God. Although he's got ways about him that could make us do that. But fearing the Lord is realizing, as I said before, that God's God and I'm not. God's up here, I'm down here. We are not even close to any kind of equal. And when we do that, he says, humility will come. And in our humility, hopefully, we'll realize if this is God's word, which it is, we'll begin to want his wisdom from this book. But what if we don't? Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom instruction and instruction. 
Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. So if we are a fool and we despise wisdom and we push away God's word and say, I don't need it, I'm all good, my life's fine, I'm doing okay, he describes us as a fool. Have you ever thought about this? This is God calling us fools if that's how we live our lives. And then he says, when pride comes, if, if we have this idea that my wisdom is more important and greater than God's wisdom, and I'm all good, I got this figured out, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says something else. He says, and because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, he became to us something. Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So Jesus became the living embodiment of the wisdom of God. This is the written word of God, and Jesus is the living word of God. So he became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And if we're not looking to Jesus for wisdom, we don't know true wisdom. We won't have it. When we look carefully at how we walk, and we do that with wisdom, we do that with two things. We do it through the lens of Jesus' life, and we do it through the filter of God's word. That's how we evaluate our life with wisdom. My kids like to play a game with us, with, well, the whole family, and it's called Would You Rather? And if you play this with, with Ben, my eight-year-old, he will come up with some really crazy ones. And um, so an example would be, um, and this is, this is mine. I didn't make it up, but it's mine. I say this one. Would you rather smash a tarantula with your bare hand or stomp on a scorpion with your bare foot? Okay, so would you rather? Then you have to answer. Okay, you have to answer. Okay. And so we do this sometimes, and it comes, goes on and on, and it's kind of silly. But this is, I think, the question. Would you rather live your life as a fool, thinking you're just, you're just smart or smarter than God, and you've got it all figured out? Or would you rather humble yourself, fear the Lord, and realize his ways are not your ways, his thoughts are not your thoughts? Because our hearts, the Bible says, are, is deceitful and desperately wicked. So would you rather? Which one? I think a lot of us, including myself, were fearful to take the time to carefully look at how we walk with wisdom. Because if we do, we might have to change something. We might have to make some hard decisions. We might have to disappoint some people. We might have to say no to some things. We might have to say yes to some things. But I think it's a scary prospect to do. And uh, my wife told me this story uh, a while ago about a mutual friend of ours. So um, she was talking to one of her friends, and uh, her friend was telling my wife this story about how her mom went and visited her other daughter. So you got a mom, two daughters. Okay, my wife Tammy's friends with one of the daughters. So mom goes to visit this other daughter, sitting in the kitchen, I'm assuming, and sitting, you know, just sitting there, probably drinking coffee, and looking around, and, you know, just talking, and then... Mom sees something on the counter, and she says to her daughter, uh, well, you must have gotten a lot of mail today. Wow. You know, there was a stack of mail sitting there. And the daughter's response was, oh, no, that's my scary mail that I don't open. <laughs> and mom was like, w w what's that? And she, well, that's all my, that's my bills that I don't even want to look at, so I leave them there. <laughs> For real. So she had this, all this stack of bills like just sitting there that hadn't been opened because she didn't want to deal with it. She didn't want to pay the price to, you know, get the bills figured out. She didn't want to do it. That was her habit. So a scary mail came, put it, in this, put it in the pile and forget about it. Life is good, you know. Uh, how many of us have a stack of scary mail in here or in our minds that we've just let stack up and we're like, I don't even want to deal with it. 
because it's easier to not deal with it. I'll just forget about it. I'll leave it over there. I won't tell anybody. It's not like real mail. Nobody can really see it anyway. How many of us have scary mail we don't want to deal with? Because if we do, if we opened up, we might have to change something. We might have to do something. But that's hard. What if, what if we diligently and wisely and carefully looked at the way we walked and lived when it came to our money? Or how we interacted with our children or our spouse? How we walked in the house after a day of work? How we spend time with God? Or spend our evenings and weekends? Or met our neighbors? How we take care of our bodies or use our time at work or do our homework? How we entertain ourselves? how we share the gospel with others, and the list could go on and on and on and on. There's a lot of pieces like the Lego box of our lives that God wants to work on every single one of them. But we have to take the time to look carefully at our life. I think our prayer should be, as in the psalmist wrote in uh, Psalm 86, 11, it says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So God, help me to fear you so I'm humble and I want wisdom and that knowledge and wisdom begin with fearing God. And Lord, teach me your way because I know my way. If I do it my way, I'm going to screw it up. And help me to walk in your truth because your truth is the only truth. And I don't think God wants us just to pray that when things are going bad. Every day he wants us to say, teach me your truth, teach me your way, help me to fear you. And this flows right into the next verse, 16, which says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So we are to look at how we walk wisely. Why? Because the days are evil, and we're to do that, making the best use of our time. So, you know, originally I thought I was going to be like, oh, yeah, we all have 24 hours a day. We need to have productive days. It's not talking about a 24-hour day. That where at the end of that day, we, we can say, oh, I was productive, I was busy, I didn't waste my time. What that word time is, it means every changing moment in your day. So every time the moment changes. So you, know, you wake up, you have to put your pants on. Okay, you go out the door, you get in your car, you go to school, you go to work. Okay. Go to lunch, you come home, you, whatever you do, every changing moment, he says, make the best use of that time because the days are evil. And we know the way we use our time is looking for the good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So we need to take every changing moment of our day and say, God, what do you want me to do? What is the work that you want me to do? Help me to do it. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, if our days, if our 24-hour days, we left them to them, uh, themselves and we forgot or just we just didn't think about God's prepared works for us to do, we weren't praying or thinking about God at all, those days would probably be described as evil. But also, the days and the time and the world that we live in is evil. Would you agree? It has been since sin entered the world. So what are some things that you guys see in our world these days that's evil? Anyone? What? Politics. Politics, <laughs> Politics is evil. Hmm? What'd you say? I'm sorry. Drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely. Materialism. Absolutely. ISIS killed over 20,000 people in the past two years over in the Middle East. Self-centeredness. There's a lot of things. Um, I, I asked our ministry staff here uh, that question, what are some things that, that we see? Uh, and I also asked a, asked a guy that uh, I interact with pretty often, um, if you look out on our student ministry table in the lobby, we've got these things, it's called a parent page, and it's basically, you know, the, about the culture of, of America, or youth culture, and, and the Bible, and this guy, his job has been for 30 years of studying culture and lining it up with the Bible, 
on figuring it out. So I asked him, and he gave me some stuff. So here, here are some things. You've said some of them already, so I'll, I'll skip those. But um, insatiable appetites for addictions of all kinds. Um, so the drugs. Heroin is ridiculous at the moment, if you don't know that. It's, it is growing and growing and growing in every community. <laughs> Uh, addictions of gambling, food and drink, shopping, spending, on and on. Um, despising the notion of absolute truth. So what I believe is okay, what you believe is okay, we're all okay. You know, there's no absolute truth, forget that. Um, a contempt for sexual purity. Why would you want to do that? Uh, a tolerance for all views except those rooted in Christian Christianity. You know. There's a big word, the proliferation of entertainment idolatry. So more and more and more entertainment being shoved down our throats and worshiping entertainers. We, we follow them on Instagram or Twitter because we care what their face looks like every 10 minutes. <laughs> it's true. Um, a widespread celebration of sexual deviancy. Um, pornography normalized and imitated through our selfie culture. The me culture, look at me, look at my face. Um, could go on and on. God, through the prophet Isaiah, warned Israel in Isaiah 5.20. He said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The world we live in also has many things distracting us from using our time wisely. What are, what are some of those things that distract us? Cell phones. Right? You ever just want to like, what? Football, sports. I was going to say, you ever want to just like chuck your phone at a wall? I do, sometimes. I'm going to take an old one. I'll chuck it against it. <laughs> I thought about that. Honestly, I'm being honest with you. I thought about that for this morning. But I thought, like, I better have good aim if I'm. So, yeah, your phones, man, they distract us, right? We want to text everybody. We feel like we have to respond immediately to every text. And if you don't respond immediately to every text, you're a bad, horrible person. <laughs> right? Why wouldn't you respond to me? Stop freaking out. Right? How many people liked my picture on Facebook or Instagram? Because people like me. Right? That's how we, we view our identity is how many people like what we put on a screen. Holy cow. Um, th this thing in our pocket's full of evil. It can be, right? It's not evil in itself, but man, it's full of evil. What else distracts us? So football, sports, what else? TV. Netflix. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. That's meddling, isn't it? Netflix, man, like, I'm going to binge watch four seasons <laughs> in a weekend because I've got nothing better to do. <laughs> Netflix, YouTube, like, I know teenagers who, like, their goal in life, I'm going to watch as much YouTube as I can. I'm going to watch three-minute videos for ten hours. <laughs> really, like, I'm not kidding you. That's the goal. Goals in YouTube. So we're to make the best use of every moment we have to evaluate our walk. Psalm 68.2 says, trust in him at all times. I think the problem is we trust ourselves too many times. We need to trust in him at all times, it says, oh people. Pour out your heart before him, because our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. So we need to pour out our heart before him, because God is a refuge for us. Sometimes we look at everything else as a refuge, right? This thing is going to protect me from my life. It's going to help me feel better about my life. 
Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So in our lives, we're to lean not on our own understanding because it won't work out most of the time. And in all your ways, at every moment of every day, acknowledge God and he will make your path straight. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lead me into what you want me to do. You know? Look at verse 17. It says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we've seen from Proverbs 1-7 that a fool is someone who hates wisdom and instruction, and Paul says, do not be foolish. So Paul wants us to love wisdom and instruction. He wants us to love it, and he wants us to understand what the will of the Lord is. What does God want us to do? So there's There's a number of verses that are very clear that say this is the will of the Lord. So I'm going to give you three of them. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So sanctification is being set free from the power, being set free from the power of sin in your life. For this is God's will for you, your sanctification. And then he describes part of it. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. How are we doing? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Be joyful always. Pray continually and give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. And third, 1 Peter 2, 15. Not third, 1 Peter, but the third thing. 1 Peter 2.15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do, the works that don't save us, but the works that God wants saved people to do, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The foolish people who push God's word aside and say, I'm good, I don't need that, are good works. We'll put them to silence because we're doing good for God. We're doing good for them. We must be seeking out the will of God from his word and constantly asking ourselves, what does God want us to do? And seeking it out, answers in his word. Verse 18, he throws this in there. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So why in the world would Paul like throw this in there? Okay, at the beginning of chapter 5, he gives some things we shouldn't do. But then he's talking about here we've learned, you know, look at your life, how you walk, how you live. And then he says, and don't get drunk with wine. I wonder, I think, I wonder if Paul was thinking that when some of us think about thinking about our lives and evaluating them piece by piece by little piece and opening all that scary mail up, that a lot of people will turn to something else in order to forget all that stuff. That's the only way they can forget it. Is to turn to a bottle or turn to drugs or turn to something else so they can forget about that hard stuff. He says, so don't get drunk with wine for that's debauchery. What in the world does that word mean? We don't use that word much. We should bring it back. Um... (laughs) It means to excessively indulge oneself in pleasure. That's what it means. Excessively indulge oneself in pleasure. Most of the time, so that we don't have to forget about our walk, or so that we do forget about our walk, and forget about our life, forget about those hard things. So I wonder, you know, I'm sure they had tons of things back in those days that were debauchery, as we do now, but... I wonder if we could even throw in, I'm speaking to myself, binge-watching Netflix. Excessively indulging in pleasure so I forget about the things that are important. Are those things wrong in themselves? No. But excessively indulging ourselves in things that bring us pleasure instead of God? That's where it gets... It's a little dicey for all of us, I think. So he says, don't get drunk with wine, but positively be filled with the Spirit. So the word filled here is not, he's not conveying the idea of a one-time thing. He's saying the word means that we're constantly being filled, or if we were more accurate in, 
it worked in the English language, we would say that Paul wants us to be being kept filled with the Spirit. That's what it means. So we know from a couple weeks ago in our study of the Holy Spirit that all believers at the moment of salvation get the Holy Spirit. So Paul isn't saying, you know, okay, Christians, now you need to get the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to him. So there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. So he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. God can empower us more and more with his Holy Spirit to do his work. And I think our part in being filled with the Spirit lies again in the power of his word. Because the Bible says the Holy Spirit carried along the men that wrote the Bible. It was not their own ideas. So I think the more that we meditate and study and read God's word, we're taking in the words that the Holy Spirit has spoken. And there are power in the words of God. And in the book of Acts, there's about 10 times where it says people were filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and almost immediately after that, what they did, they started to talk to people about Jesus. So I think if we are being filled more with the Spirit, a result, the biggest result is we're going to be talking to people more about Jesus and with, with more frequency and more courage. Because that is a whole book of Acts of being filled with the Spirit. And we can't just wait and say, okay, God, fill me with the Spirit. And we wait for some tingly feeling up our neck. He's like, well, my Spirit wrote a bunch. He wants you to know it. My Spirit empowered the life of Jesus Christ. Look at His life and live how you ought to. So be filled with the Spirit. That's, that's a command. And, and Paul gives us four other results of being filled with the Spirit. The first two are closely linked together. So Paul says in verse 19 that we will be addressing one another or speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And secondly, we'll be singing and making melody to the Lord in our hearts. So this can mean a lot of things. It's a big, wide-open door. Okay. Maybe it's spending time learning the psalms and sharing them with people. So uh, Eric up here, he sang and er, he shared a psalm with us during worship. Okay, during my sermon, I've shared a few psalms. Maybe you know somebody who's going through a tough time and you, you know Psalm 23, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Maybe... Someone's dealing with sin and repentance, and you take them to Psalm 51, where David is repenting of his sin with Bathsheba and killing her husband. And he says, it's to the Lord I have sinned against. I've sinned against the Lord. Maybe you've got somebody struggling with knowing that God loves them and created them and cares for them. So you're like, oh, Psalm 139, God knit you together in your mother's womb before you were even born. That was God's doing. Or maybe you've got somebody who they're, having, they're struggling with knowing what is the purpose of God's word. So you take them to Psalm 19, which says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And it goes on and on. It's about talking what the Bible does, what God's word does. So speaking to one, or, one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the word there that's addressing one another or speaking to one another, that's, that's a word that means it's audible. So we as Christians speak to other Christians about the things of God. We do that. That's a normal thing as Christians. That is a mark that we have the Holy Spirit. And sometimes that comes out in song. Have you ever been around those people? They're a little weird. <laughs> They'll just start singing, you know. Um, but here's the deal. One of the coolest things as I was reading through this, and one of the neatest things is at my own house is, and my kids are sitting right there so they can attest to this, that we'll be reading the Bible with our kids, me and my wife. Now, don't get the picture that my kids perfectly sit on a couch and they're like, oh yes, Father, share with us thine words of wisdom. <laughs> it's not like that, and that's okay. It's, it's more fun that way. So, it's, so, don't get that picture. But what happens is we'll be reading the Bible and 
Tammy and I will catch eyes and we'll be like, should we sing it? Because we'll read this verse and we'll be like, oh, we know a song. And we'll start singing this song, you know, and, and it, it happens all the time, doesn't it? And we'll just start singing and the, and the kids will be like, oh, it's singing again. <laughs> but it'll be a song like that we both learned when we were in Sunday school or when we were in VBS or just here at church, you know. If you, in our house, if you hear like something about the word father, it's like, you're a good, good father. And it just comes out and it's, yeah. So that's what, that's what spirit-filled people do occasionally. It also can mean that we're singing with each other like we do, right? We sing along together every Sunday. We can sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Did you know there are churches that only sing psalms? Did you know there are churches that only sing hymns? I bet you you do. And there's probably some churches that just say, oh, forget all those. We're just going to sing however the Spirit leads us. It's going to be great. What this is saying is all three are needed. We need to sing the words of God in the Psalms. We need to sing praises and glories to God in hymns. And we need to sing about what the Spirit has done in our life. We need them all. And if we leave any of them out, we're doing something wrong. They're all good, as long as it leads us to honor and worship the Lord, to sing and make melody to the Lord in your hearts. That's what we need to do. And if it's a joyful noise, sing it out. Make a noise, okay? Let me tell you something. So Paul is sharing with us, here's the marks of the Spirit, okay? Let's say you are a professed Christian, but you never talk to anybody about God or anything a Christian. And maybe every week at church you stand there during the songs like, I'm not singing a word. I think Paul would say, you need to examine yourself to maybe see if you're in the faith. Because this is what Christians do. They talk about God. They sing the songs. So you will have the opportunity in a few minutes to sing more. And if, if you're that person, Sing, for goodness sake. Make melody to the Lord in your hearts. That's what he wants us to do. The third mark of a spirit-filled Christian is that they're thankful. We already read that that's part of God's will for us. And I think Paul would tell us, as he did to the Philippians, that thankfulness is part, part of the cure to anxiety. So in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, he said, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So I think thankfulness is the enemy of anxiety, because anxiety focuses on self, and thankfulness focuses on God. So it's part, it is just part of the cure, but I think the next time any of us we're feeling worried or anxious and we're just overwhelmed by our own life, get on your knees and begin to thank God for anything and everything you can think of. God doesn't want his children to be ungrateful and thankless. Shakespeare wrote in King Lear, he said, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. God does not want thankless children. The mark of a spirit-filled Christian, they're thankful. You're thanking God for things constantly. And finally, Paul tells us that another mark of being filled with the Spirit is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We don't have time for a sermon on submission, but it'd be a good one, be fun. Sometime we'll do it. But we revere Christ as the head of the church. So out of reverence for Christ, we submit to one another. John MacArthur says, spirit-filled people are joyful. They sing sometimes. Spirit-filled people are thankful. And spirit-filled people are humble. They submit. They don't have their own agenda. They don't want to dominate. They eagerly step aside and give way to others. That's submission. We are to be imitators of God. 
And that isn't a suggestion. It is a command that God has given those of us who have found the grace and forgiveness through our faith in Christ. So, as always, we will have our prayer partners up here. But maybe this is the day where you open up some of the scary mail. Maybe this is the day where you say, you know, I need to make a better use of my time. Maybe you are involved in the evil of the world and you need to get out of that. Maybe you're spending your time getting drunk or high because you frankly don't want to deal with life. Confess that to someone. We confess our sins to God and he forgives us. We confess our sins to one another so we can be healed. You feel better when you confess and repent. Maybe you need to be more thankful. You need to just come up to one of the prayer partners and say, I got five things to be thankful for. Can, you, can I pray with you? And just thank God. And maybe, maybe some of us need to be a little more humble and step out of the way of people at church and submit to one another and enjoy one another and not have a domineering attitude and just submit to one another. So let's not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for just the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I thank you that you forgive us. I thank you that you give us grace in our time of need. I thank you that um, we're all here today and can freely, openly worship you. Lord, I thank you for uh, all of the, the, the things uh, in this world that you're taking care of. And Lord, I just pray that you will help us to carefully look at every little Lego piece of our lives and um, want and desire for you to change us and to change those pieces. Help us to think of our time and each changing moment uh, more wisely. And help us to desire your will in sanctification and uh, desire your will when it comes to uh, being joyful. I pray you'll give us the joy uh, of the Spirit. And Lord, I just ask that you will, through your Spirit right now, give people courage to um, admit things, to talk about things, to pray, and to humble themselves before um, you and before other people. I pray that you will do wonderful healing works in hearts, in minds, and in lives from this day forward. In Jesus' name. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's Word and seek to know Him better through the Gospel. Our prayer is that the Gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the Word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.